My name is Eugene Lipov. I'm a physician who started using Stellar Ganglion Block to treat PTSD and control the overactive sympathetic system, fight and flight system. We're going to be talking about that in the show as well as the impact on the mind and body that it does and what can be done about it and a way to reverse PTSD in 10 or 15 minutes. Stay tuned. Welcome back. This is part three of my interview with Dr. Eugene Lipov, who is the discoverer of what might be the greatest medical innovation in the world of PTSD. This episode of Curiosity Bites is brought to you in part by The Dragon's Lair. Have you discovered the next level of your evolution? Imagine being in a virtual classroom where I personally walk you through live trainings that where I reveal the techniques and strategies that previously only offered to CEOs, C-suite executives, high-level entrepreneurs, athletes, and entertainers, then being able to access those trainings and the exclusive workbooks that go with them on demand. That's what many of our listeners are doing now by going over to www.patreon.com forward slash Dovbaron. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Dovbaron. And in just two minutes, you can join us. In fact, you can even get over there and access past episodes of things like ethical persuasion, becoming a meaning-driven leader, uh, resilient leadership in times of chaos, how to be the most disciplined person you know. All of that's available to you. And of course, as a bonus, you get the access to the videos of this very podcast that you're listening to. Just go over to, again, patreon.com forward slash Dovebaron and secure your seat. All right, welcome back. I'm here for part three of my interview with Dr. Eugene Lipov. He is transforming the lives of so many who've been suffering with PTSD. Um, he has tapped into a medical innovation that might be the greatest thing since Jonas Salk in 1953 came up with the vaccine for polio. It is transforming lives in so many ways. We've talked about epigenetics. We've talked about um, adrenal response. We've talked about so, uh, so much lack of understanding and new understanding around uh, the genes and the brain and how we're all responding to trauma that we've gone through. And I want to sort of jump into uh, a piece here. You you mentioned earlier that your mom had uh, suicided. And you also talked about your dad being less than a wonderful person to live with when he gave up uh, cigarettes. You, were, you immigrated uh, to the U.S. when I think you were 15 from the USSR or what was the USSR back in those days. Um, that must have been in and of itself a fairly traumatic. Were your parents medical there before they came to the US? Yeah, they were both doctors. They were yes, both sir. doctors. Yes. And then they both became highly trained because I am assuming, uh, again, assuming that the, the medical, ex, the, the, they didn't say, oh, you're a doctor over there, you're a doctor over here. They, were, they probably didn't go through a lot because I've met people who were medical doctors who are now janitors or, or you know, when I met them, they were janitors. So talk to us about that, because coming to a new country, uh, new language, entirely different culture, um, and then, you know, uh, uh, being people with two children, they had two sons, right? Is that right? You, you and your yes, brother? Sir. Two yep. sons who've now got to integrate into a new world. 
there's a lot going on there that could also be, to say the least, challenging. Talk to us a little bit about that part of the journey first. <laughs> I think challenging is a good term. I was 14 <laughs> actually when we came here. You were 14, okay. 14, and then it took my parents a number of years to get the licensing and things like that. So yes, it was very um, difficult, shall we say, because as you said, it's a totally different culture. Mm -hmm. Language, and I'm not a good linguist, so it took me a long time to learn it, and it's debatable if I know it now. Um, me too. It's <laughs> <laughs> still working it, right? Still working uh, it. But I think uh, it was very traumatic. Also, if you think about adolescence, it's not the best time to change countries. Because this is when you're going through all of your um, learning adaptation. And plus, my parents obviously were not in the best moods because they were trying to survive. Mm -hmm. And we were very poor for a number of years when we got here. So uh, the thing I was very fortunate about that my parents insisted on education. And I knew education was important. So I was able to stick to it. And I was very fortunate to get into some amazing schools. I went to Francis Parker, which is a great high school in Chicago. I went Northwestern undergraduate and then medical school. Mm -hmm. But the first five to seven years were uh, interesting, to put it mildly. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about that environment? Because, you know, we've talked about, about trauma and we tend to think about trauma, um, and I've talked about this a lot in my work, we tend to think about trauma as being an incident or several incidents, but there's also what I call environmental trauma. And that is where you live in an environment that puts you in that high adrenal response constantly. And yeah, maybe you're not getting punched in the face when you come home from school, but the anxiety, like as a kid, you know, I, I just I was speaking to my mother before you and I spoke you know, and I, and I was talking to my mom who was, who was getting ready to pass. And I, you know, there was a lot of shit in our childhood. And I said, but you know, I never, ever, in all of our days, no matter how poor we are, I never went to bed hungry. That was never a concern. There was a lot of other concerns, violence and crime and all kinds of stuff every single day, but that was not a problem. But I know my mates who were traumatized by whether they would be able to eat at night before they went to bed. There's an environmental trauma. I imagine making it up, um, but I imagine being highly trained people, your mom and dad were both highly trained individuals, coming to a new country with a foreign language, suddenly not having those qualifications, not be having this as your first language, and being poor, that creates an environment of trauma. Well, of course, the other part is, you know, keep in mind, if you go back for a second, back to epigenetics, that's part of the reason I'm really interested in epigenetics is because my grandfather was almost killed during pogroms in Russia. Yes. My father was part of a um, squadron, naval aviation squadron. They had 10,000 people who started it. At the end of the war, there was 100 survivors. From 10,000? Yes. Their job was, if you think about the, what they were doing, they were flying planes and attacking ships, German ships. Yeah. 
it's a very small environment, amazingly well defended, and they're being shot out of the sky and so on. So right there, he had PTSD from that. Then he came to this country and he couldn't quite adapt to it in the beginning, at least. It was, it was uh, very stressful, to put it mildly. And he was never really an easygoing kind of individual. He did the best he could is what he had, but he was very intense. You know, he was very easy to anger and things like that. Was he violent? Yeah, yeah. Right. So he, you know, he believed in a single neuron uh, idea. There's a direct connection from the butt to the brain. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so yeah. You, you, you don't need to know much neuroscience. You just need one neuron. <laughs> one neuron, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. all you got. <laughs> right. And, and your mom? So my mother was trying to reduce problems, trying to, you know, it's like there wasn't that much, I think there wasn't that much beating from my mother. Uh, later in life, you know, she supposedly, she asked him to hit her so she would stop being depressed, which is a debatable methodology, especially for a physician. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, that was, yeah, there was some violence that went on and, um, you know, and it, so eventually she was being depressed. She was falling into depression. She couldn't get out of it. And she got a family of depression, family history of depression. But then, um, and she, you know, she was under care of psychiatrist and then she attempted suicide and she completed a week later. So it was I, having, seeing her uh, dead on the floor was really, she hung herself. So having rope marks, it was just horrible. So you saw that? Yeah. So that's and part of the reason I had my stellar ganglion block done and I had therapy for two years. How old were you? 23. And you said that you had therapy and ganglion block done. Um, how long after did you do that? Oh, many years later. And the reason that we did it is because our kid at the time, it was challenging, shall we say. Your own son? Yes. Right. And then what we, what one of our psychologists or psychiatrists at that time, we had tons of people walking, coming sure. to our house, trying to figure it out. This was many years later. And then um, they said, you're going to a fugue. I was like, what, what do you mean? So I would walk him home and basically be, be useless. I mean, I couldn't really function. I could function to work, but I couldn't function walking to the house because it was such stressful environment for me. It was my son, conflict, my, you know, my wife, all of that. So I had fugues, which I had no idea was happening. Somebody else had to observe it. So once I heard about it, I called up my body and I said, I, I think it's time for me to have my blog done. And then I found an amazing therapist, Dick Schwartz, who's done an amazing job for me. So did you, at that time, did you understand the uh, stellar ganglion block in the context of PTSD? What was when, I, when I had it done? Uh, no, yeah, no, when you were in all this trauma and realizing the stuff with your son and how it was impacting you? Uh, I, I didn't quite realize the impact. I didn't realize I was going fuging, that's for sure. Right. Uh, and the other part is, you know, it's I've came from a relatively difficult environment. So to me, environment that's difficult is kind of part of the job. Right. So you, you get through it. I was doing, that's what's weird. I was doing stellar ganglion blocks 
and not recognizing trauma in myself. Right. And that's, that's my, that, that's exactly my point because he, I'm going to just tell you a little bit of my theory around dragon fire and, and it's, a, it's my term. So if anybody's listening and go, what the hell is he talking about? I'm going to explain it to you right now. I believe that iron is forged. Uh, iron in fire becomes steel. So the strength of steel comes from iron that is put into the heat. Yep. And in our lives, we are raw and we're put into the fire of our lives. And the fire of our lives either defines us or refines us. And if it defines <laughs> us, we are burned up by it. And we just keep talking about the fire. And many of us are refined by it. Now, the key here is that the refine goes in two directions. And in one direction, it requires us to repress the fire and go out and function at a very high level to prove that we're not burned. So it's an actual proof. And so we become right. these high uh, performance, uh, high achieving individuals. Everyone that I meet, I mean, I've worked with some amazing human beings who are incredibly successful, who I'm looking at and going, you are so freaking traumatized. It's insane. I was talking to uh, a insanely wealthy person on, two days ago who doesn't get how traumatized he is by his uh, very strict childhood that he was brought up in. Uh, and, you know, and he sees himself as a good Christian man, blah, blah, blah. And, I, and I'm not saying he isn't, but I can hear the trauma in everything he says. And he hasn't got it because he, when I say, what do, what do you really want? He can only go to stuff. He can't go to what he actually needs at a psychological, emotional, connective level. So he's constantly pursuing more stuff outside of himself. And th that high performance individuals are very often the people who were put into the fire, forged by it, and have become something. Now, the, the distinction in the work that I do is, okay, you're, you're, you've got this high performance, you've achieved a lot, which is fantastic. What if you return to the fire and allow yourself to become the dragon? And in order to do that, you have to do two things. So the mythology of dragons, which is beautiful and Jungian, is that first of all, dragons sit on the gold meaning gut dragons protect what is precious so the dragon is protecting what's precious inside of you and it sees everything as an enemy of that which is precious which is a total ego response however what we know about dragons is dragons have all these scales and they're impenetrable and all these high performance people seem impenetrable they look like i don't know eugene lipov they look like uh, Dove Baron, they look like our friend, you know, we look pretty impenetrable. Um, but real dragons, the scale that is in front of their chest, in front of the heart is translucent in mythology. So you can see through it, you can see the heart pumping. So real dragons lead with heart and with fire. And they might and so people say, Well, what are they breathing fire onto? lies so when you take then all that stuff that you did to become a high performing leader 
in whatever your area is, and you bring it back to the truth, you confront that which is dis disenfranchised, which is what you're doing and I'm doing in our both different ways, confront that which is disenfranchised. We look at that part that feels broken and we say it's not broken, it's, it's off and tweak it so that it can be on and in full power. Now I can be a dragon. I can take all that power that I had to succeed and I can now use it to bring to the world what I needed. Because here's the next part of this. I believe that dragon leaders are here to provide the very thing they needed, but to provide it to the world. You needed I think I, a stellar I think blocker right. your entire life and you and your mother's suicide and a bunch of other things that would have taken you off track that wherever you were going, put you on a completely different track that would allow you to fulfill your soul's need, what you needed, so that you could gift that to the world. That's my theory of Dragonfire. You know, it's interesting. So people, number of people ask me because I've had number of stumbling blocks and blocks along the road. Um, as I was trying to develop this PTSD treatment. Yes. And people ask, like, how in the hell do you, how were you able to actually hang in there? Because, you know, I've had like major um, issues with some major sections of the armed forces wanting to shut this down. Sure. And I was like, and the answer is basically, and it's like, if it's not me, then who? And then, you know, it's like, I, you know, whenever I was, I was like ready to give up, I, I thought about all the people who are gonna not have the care they need and continue to suffer, which is like living, you know, there's no hope. It's a horrible way to live. It's just horrible pain, emotional pain and whatever. Yeah, the interesting thing is that what I say to my clients that I work with is, yeah, you're successful, that's great, but who will suffer if you continue to play small and they go, what do you mean? And I said, I know you're playing big in your world, but you're playing small at your soul level. That part of you that is, that is called to do this thing. If you don't do that, people will suffer and they will suffer not now, but long after you're gone, your legacy is to have impact on the people who will never know. Like I say, when people say, what's your dragon fire? It's to have the impact that I'm here to have on the people who will never know my name and whose name I will never know. Because it's not about me. It right. needs me. I understand that, that I am, I am the vehicle for it, just as you are. But you're not looking for this to end the day you, 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 know, you park your clogs. No, you're looking for doing something that is far bigger than you. And that's what I'm saying about this being, it's not a purpose. It's not a mission. This is dragon fire. This is your soul's yearning to have a legacy in the world that, that often takes us off in a different direction. I was born, my art was in galleries by the time I was uh, 11 years old. Everybody thought I'd be an artist. That's what I thought I was going to be too. But that wasn't my soul's journey. That was my gift. I don't know where, what direction you were going in. I think it was surgery, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was very interested in surgery. My father was a surgeon. And then, yeah, so my surgical career came to a pretty screeching halt after my mother's suicide. Right. Yeah. Because you went into trauma? 
No, I just didn't. I mean, I, I was doing my surgical residency in county hospital, which is very intense, you can imagine. Yeah. Um, so after three months, you know, my mother dies and then my father was depressed and he was calling me every day that he's this is the worst day of his life. I just didn't have in order to become a surgical resident and a surgeon, you really need to have 100% commitment and support around from people around you. I, I didn't have it anymore. It took me years to come back from that type of trauma. So again, how many years after that did you did you have your stellar treatment? After my mother's death? Yeah. 22, 23. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But you know, just I'll, I'll tell you a couple other traumas I had along the way. So when I was three years old, uh, I was living in Ukraine with my brother. And then we had, and we were, we lived in a place where they had the biggest armor conflict between Russia and Germany. Yes. There was some unexploded ordnance around, shall we say. So the two geniuses kids we were playing around with found this thing that looks like a pipe. They brought it, you know, they showed it to us. We showed it to my dad and he said, no, that's a anti-personnel ordinance. So he hid it. They found it. And then my father said, don't go play with them. So they took that and threw it against the uh, rock. One lost a couple of legs and lost an arm. Horrible, right? So I was like three at that time. So then when I was in medical school, I was snorkeling. I got hit by a propeller blade and I lost half my blood volume, like in about 10 minutes. So I've had, you know, this continuous various trauma along the path besides my mother's death and, you know, other things happened, but so I, I look back and it's like, oh my God. So I was able to decompress all of my psychologist, but it was very interesting to see kind of, I mean, my, my question is how I survived through all of this. <laughs> well, again, you know, for me, this is what I'm saying about being defined or refined. Um, and it's not always better. So you become high functioning, you become more determined, you become more... <laughs> you know, that laser beam focus. But I did a I did a video about where I talked about focus and the importance of focus. But I said there are two forms of focus. There are what I call laser focus and micro uh, or microscopic focus. And the and the difference is to me, the difference is this. When I'm laser focused, I'm focused on a target and everything else is considered a distraction. The world gets smaller. And when we're in stress when, when we're in trauma, when life hits us with a lot of stuff, oftentimes we can become laser focused. Some people don't, but high performance people do. I know I did, and it sounds like you did. And what that means is the world becomes smaller, not bigger. So we become what I call genius idiots. Like we become like so focused in on something that we're actually, like I meet these people, I'm like, you're a freaking genius. How come you're so stupid in relationships? How come you don't know how to communicate? Because it's that laser focus. If I put my focus on that, I will feel better. Again, we're trying to feel better. So I put my focus in on that to such a degree that that's the main line that keeps me off all the trauma. And that focus is great because it makes us very successful. But it's terrible in making us fulfilled. It's terrible in giving us emotional maturity. The other one is microscopic focus which i've learned to have 
Microscopic focus is where I look down the microscope at the thing and what I see in it reveals to me uh, uh, in that infinitesimally small thing, an infinite universe of things. So instead, instead, so in order to go bigger, I have to go smaller. So I look into the micro of it and everything expands out of it. And I begin to understand the world at a much vaster level than I ever did. And so as a result, I'm now seeing the interactions, the cellular interactions, the neuron interactions of my relationship with my wife, with my children, with my grandchildren, with all of my relationships, as opposed to being micro, uh, uh, being laser focused and saying, that doesn't matter. This is what's important, which drives being right. And I see a lot of people who are um, laser beam focused are driven egoically about being right. Whereas people who become microscopically focused are like, oh, there must be something else in there, which is the driver of, as I call it, curiosity. So I get more and more and more curious and I find more and more and more out about it, as you have done with this, with the, with the blockers, like, oh, well, it, it's for pain. No, it's not. It's for all these things. Is it, uh, is it a, uh, a pa- you know, is it a plus, uh, just cure everything no of course not no but but there are things it can cure that you've never considered you know i mean and this is this is what i love about what you're doing is it's opening up entire worlds but this piece is for me what i'm really interested in is i wonder what it will do for those people like the person we just talked about who are high functioning high focused um highly intelligent who have been living with trauma at their entire lives not even recognized it because they've been so functioning and now suddenly that's all that adrenal response is going to be out of the way it's fascinating to me to see well okay wonder what's going to happen with them i know you've dealt with soldiers i know you've dealt with military people i know you've dealt with rape victims and i'm really wondering how much work have you done around those kinds of people, the high performance, high trauma, traumatized individuals? So, well, I mean, we, we have a person in common that we, we know what the response is. So I think if, if I could step back for a second. So one, yes. of the, one of the things when you're talking about the laser focus, my perspective is a little different. What I sure. find a lot of people who are like that, and the reason I do it, it's a form of hiding. Yes. It's hiding from emotion. Right? You got it. Because they, you can have the best of everything. Lombardini, Maserati, whatever. The best. Of, but what makes you happy is actually not that. It's uh, until amygdala is not happy, nobody is happy. So if, if you have a pissed off amygdala, that's not good. You've got a Lamborghini and a pissed off amygdala. Yeah, it's still miserable. It's like, okay, then then that means Lombardini is not enough. I need uh, whatever, something yeah, else. It's an, it's, that's what I said. Maserati, it's more it's stuff. Exactly, but it, it doesn't, because you're not really affecting that because amygdala is what drives the basic things. So I think until that's under control, until you can connect to it, and that's why... The man that I told you about, and I'm going to get back to the question he asked, though. But the man I told you was crying because he had no emotion for 50 years. 
that is the key to that. I think what it does, so highly functional personalities, you're talking about, let's say, high-powered CEO. Let's assume yep. that for a second. So I have not, I've never done a block for that type of individual. I've done it for colonels, maybe a general, I'm not sure. But the point is, what we've done, though, what we find is that the concentrations improve, their sleep is improved, and I'll, my favorite description of the guy, I'll, I'll give you a quick story, and I think it'll be clear. So this guy came in, and I was doing a opening. I was trying to open you know, something new. And then this gentleman came in. He was too frightened to walk in because he was afraid of being around people. Mm. So a psychologist told me, hey, go, to, go talk to him anyway. So I bring him out. And then he later, he told me he was suicidal. We treated him. He's done great. He's still alive. God will. Anyway, thank God. Mm -hmm. And this was, we treated him in 2011, I think. And he was in Fox News with me together in 2012 national um but what was interesting is that he used to be very big in vfw that organization mm -hmm. so after i treated him so i ran into a guy who used to work with them he shook my hand he said you know that guy was the biggest bastard we had to deal with now he's nice what the hell you did to him he was pleasant mm -hmm. pleasant appropriate i mean he's still somewhat gruff but he was an amazing man, had a lot to give to the world. So the point is, if the CEO or whoever can hold down to their, what they were able to achieve, let's say run a huge company, but if they're miserable and it's at their expense, then it's not going to work very well for them long-term because then they can have heart problems. They can have this problem and that problem. Yeah. As I said, I we did treat. I actually, I remember I treated one CEO. It didn't work for him, but you know, not there's no procedure works for everybody. No, right. But um, but again, there's also um, what we call embedded psychology, meaning that that person has has identified so strongly with a personality that they won't give it up. So, you know, um, of course, you've got things like um, narcissism, you've got things like sociopathic um, behavior, all those kinds of things, which, again, um, I think is, I personally uh, don't believe that, I can certainly see that some people are born with um, psychopathic or sociopathic uh, tendencies, of course, but their environment definitely facilitates that. There's an epigenetic response Absolutely. at a much bigger level. But I also think there are some people who don't want uh, relief from that personality. I've met people. I worked with somebody years ago, not for very long, briefly, and I said, and I finally nailed him to the wall and said, why are you really here? And he, and he said, well, because, you know, this behavior is not good in the bubble. I said, no, no, you don't I know it. that you know that, but why are you here? And he goes, well, because uh, my wife wants me to be. Right. And, and it's go, never going to work. And I go, but d this flaw that we're talking about, that you call a flaw in your personality, do you want to get rid of that? Or do you think it's an advantage? And he goes, 
oh, it's an advantage. And they go, there's no way in the world you're getting rid of that. There's no way in the world. I, I could be freaking Merlin. I ain't getting rid of that. It's not working. And he goes, why? And I go, because you don't want it to go away. You're going to claw it back every single time I try and take it away. Every time I create an open space for it, you can't see anything better because you think it's your strategic advantage as a leader. It's not, but I understand that you think it is. And, and I have to accept that. So there's also that piece of it. But for me, like I said, what I'm really excited about, and I know it's not, not there yet, is the potential of the work you're doing of this amazing breakthrough applied. Yes, it needs to be applied to people who are feeling hopeless and feeling suicidal. Absolutely. It needs to be applied to military people and people that could transform the psychiatric world and the psychology world. Absolutely. But I'm fascinated to see what it does to people who are really understand their gift who are artists who are dancers who are well, actually you know, i have an answer to that i have yeah. an answer to that we took care of a patient recently who's a uh, filamentographer uh and then she said her color is so much brighter and she's so much more creative because if you think about it if you're running from the tiger you're not writing a poem you're running yeah but right? you you have you're focused, but that's not a good focus. Yeah. We talked about in, a, in the last episode that I put out of Curiosity Bites, I was interviewing uh, some people uh, in the context of Black Lives Matter and the violence in Chicago and Philadelphia and places like that. And one of the things that we were talking about is the way police are trained and it's how poor it is. Because when you are confronting uh, somebody uh, and there's four police people with guns out and they're saying, uh, put the gun down, but the, the, the person in front of them who's holding a gun can't hear them, that they can't fully hear them and they can't fully see them. And the, you're just creating too much stimulus by four people shouting, put the gun down and not actually creating connection. So there's so much adrenal response that their, their actual, their ability to understand that there, there is a, that there is a, com a compliance required doesn't come up all it is is just i'm in threat i'm in total threat so they can't hear and so as you said how could you be creative for that point how could you write a poem sing a song do a dance how could you think in a way that's expansive i mean you think about creativity creativity is expansive thinking whether i'm thinking creatively as a philosopher as a poet as an artist or anything it's an expansive level of thinking. I mean, this work you're doing for me is art. You're I'm, I mean that with all sincerity, because you're expanding the idea of something into a unified theory that is far beyond what has been considered. And that is, the, that is what art is at every possible level. It is thinking beyond what we know, it is getting past the boundaries of the concept of where something fits to expand it. This is, honestly, I believe that this is a massive medical breakthrough. I think it is a massive psychological breakthrough. And I think it is potentially a cultural transformation that I want to see how we bring it to the world. And in our next part, in the fourth part, in the last part of this, 
I want to talk about that. How do we bring this to the world? How do we make people aware of this and make it accessible? Not just for, because part of the medical problem in the United States is not just for the wealthy, but for the people who are living in poverty, who are often traumatized by all kinds of circumstances and who will never get out of that circum those those circumstances because they're just repeating the cycle. So I want to come back in the part four and talk about that. Again, thank you, Dr. Eugene Lipov. I am excited and honored to be here with you. you. And I hope that you, dear listener, will come back for part four with this amazing man talking about this amazing, amazing medical procedure. We'll be back in a few. I'll see you on the other side.